Well, this is a great church. Uh, if you uh, were one of the people that hundreds that went out last week and helped people across the city, you know what I'm talking about. It was my privilege to spend a couple of hours with a group helping a single mom uh, fix up her home in Euless. And I could not believe the amount of work people did even before I got there. But not just that, it was how much fun they were having serving. And that happened all over the city. And then I just cannot thank enough the people that volunteered to work on this garage sale this past week. It was immense. Hundreds and thousands of hours went into that experience. And it blessed a lot of people and gave our children a great example. And so if you're a guest, I want you to know that we're in the midst of a historic time in our church. And we're having the largest capital campaign we've ever tried to have to put more missionaries on the field, to launch a second campus, and to make very needed improvements on this campus for the growth that we believe God wants us to have. And I know that this has been a long season for us, and it's going to be over soon. But I also think it has been a significant season for us. And I'm getting a lot of comments from people saying I've been challenged. And in some ways, this season has put me on a growth path I haven't been on in a while. What I want to do this morning is talk very specifically about some of the things I know that are in the back of the minds of some of us. And I hope it will be a blessing to you. I'll tell you up front, it's going to be a different kind of teaching. But I think it's going to be needed. Several weeks ago, I was at the breakfast table with my wife, and I was looking at the sports page, and I noticed that there was this particular athlete. Now, he's not noted either for his character or his intelligence. And he was announcing his engagement to a very uh, beautiful actress. And I've noticed this phenomenon before, and I never have understood it. And so I said something across the table to my wife, Honey, how is it that the biggest schmucks wind up marrying the most beautiful women. She said, well, thank you, dear. (laughs) And so you need to be careful with your questions because you might get an answer you weren't expecting and probably needed to hear. That's what happened to Judas in our teaching last week when Mary anointed Jesus. We heard Judas ask a question. Why is she wasting this money? And he got an answer to his question. It wasn't what he wanted, but it was what he needed. Well, I know when you have a campaign of this magnitude, there are going to be a lot of questions asked that ought to be asked, that need to be asked. Now, is it possible that some of the questions are motivated by a bad spirit or an ungenerous heart? I guess that's possible. I haven't had that experience with anyone. I guess it's possible. What is very probable is that Satan is going to try to derail the vision and momentum of this church by spreading untruths because he's the father of lies. In fact, I started to title this message, Don't Myths This. Don't miss your chance to be a part of one of the most important moments in the history of our church because you listened to something that wasn't true. Greater things has got to be built on the foundation of greater truth. So what I want to do this morning is answer seven questions about this campaign. I think they are fair questions and I think they are asked by people with good motives 
And here's the first. Didn't our church get in trouble once before with a big capital campaign? Maybe you heard stories about that or maybe you were hearing during those years in the late 80s and early 90s when this church had a tremendous debt crisis brought on by a campaign that went poorly. What you need to know is that in the history of our church, we've had at least six major campaigns. Only one went poorly. The reason it did is because we got ahead of God and we confused faith with presumption. And so what happened was a bunch of people pledged money they didn't have Believing someday down the road it would show up. And we called it faith. It was actually presumption and God humbled us. And I remember the night when the leaders of the church stood up before the church and repented. And confessed their pride. And we made a promise we would never do that again. We're going to be a debt free church. And we implored all our families to do the same thing. You remember last spring when we had the Andy Stanley small group series. We said get your house in order. Before we get this house in order. Now, some are going to say, well, don't the elders know that the economy's tough right now? Of course they do. But think of for a second. Are you implying if we had waited a few years when the economy was better, it would be easier to sacrifice then? Because if it's easy, it's not a sacrifice. It doesn't matter when the campaign happened. We were going to ask you to sacrifice. And sacrifice is always hard. If we had waited a few more years, everything we wanted to do would just cost a lot more money. Here's what I want you to know. We are not going to borrow money to fund this vision. And we don't want a single family in this church to go and borrow and go into debt to be a part of this campaign. We believe God has already provided all the resources we need to fund our mission. Our challenge is going to be, and our privilege is going to be, to reallocate what He's already given us for a more kingdom agenda. Which, I think, leads into another question. And that is, why is the church always talking about money? There was this American that went on a vacation in Mexico in Acapulco. He was walking down the sidewalk. And he heard a mother began to scream and he turned around. And in broken English, she explained that her child had just swallowed a whole lot of coins. He picked that boy up by the ankles and began to shake him. And every single coin down to the last penny came out of that child's mouth. And the mother, again, in broken English, was so grateful. She said, how did you know what to do? Are you a doctor? He said, no, I work for the United States Internal Revenue Service. Only twice in 30 years have elders ever called me in and told me to preach on something. The first time was, and I've been preaching about five years, and my elders in Abilene called me in and said, you've never in five years talked about giving and money. It's time. Why would I not talk about giving and money for five years? I was afraid that people would think that's why I was doing ministry. And that's why I wanted their tithes and offerings. Because it was about me. I was wrong. Now be fair. These sermons have not primarily been about money or giving. They've been about discipleship. But I wouldn't apologize if they were about money or giving because the Bible is the source of my sermons and the Bible talks a lot about money. Why? Two reasons. Number one, because Jesus wants your heart. 
Just read the Gospels, and you've heard me say this before. One out of every six statements of Jesus is about money. One out of every three parables is about money. Jesus talks more about money than any other subject except the kingdom of God. Why? Because he understands that money is the chief rival to the kingdom of God. He said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. Notice he doesn't say, so you should not. He doesn't say you must not. He says you can not serve both God and money. He speaks of money as a rival God that's vying for our allegiance. Money is not some neutral commodity on a shelf. Money is used by God, by Satan to steal our hearts from God. And the only way to enthrone God is to dethrone money. And the way Jesus says you do this is not to take a vow of poverty, but to take a vow of generosity. He says you can actually direct your heart toward the kingdom of God by putting your money there. Matthew 6, 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you remember I taught you, he does not say, hey, just put your heart there and your money will go. No, Jesus said, put your money there and your heart will follow. Why does the Bible talk so much about money? Because Jesus wants your heart. And second, because the kingdom needs your resources. Because salvation is free, but ministry is expensive. We can pray all we want about a Christian university that will change East Africa, but not one single brick will be laid until somebody raises some money. We can all agree it's a great idea to have 21 missionaries, but not a single one can stay on the field unless somebody sends them some money. We can all affirm the fact that West Fort Worth is underchurched and that we need a presence there. But nothing's going to happen until we raise some money. This is a principle all through Scripture. That if you want an increased harvest, you have to increase the amount you spend on seed. That raises a question then. Is this all about numbers? Yes. That was easy, wasn't it? Yes, this is about numbers. I don't get the person who says, well, I'm just not into numbers. Numbers are people. And people matter to God. How can anyone read the book of Acts and say God doesn't care about numbers? Jesus gave a parable about what the kingdom is like in Luke 14. He says it's like the master wanting people to come to his table, to come to his banquet. And he's sending out this invitation to all the people and they're saying no. And the servant said they're not coming. So the master says then you go out to the roads and the country lanes and you make them come in so that my house will be full. God has never said there's enough in the house. He wants a full house. Now, some people put it this way. Well, I just don't believe in big churches. Cool. Then go to a small church. But when that church gets at a certain size, go start another church. And then go start another small church. I don't care. Just keep starting churches so that more people can get saved. 
or go to a big church. Now, I like big churches. I think they're more effective. There was a study recently that said a church of 1,000 will grow twice as fast as 10 churches of 100. I think larger churches can be more effective in stewarding their resources, but that's just my opinion. If you want to do small church, do small church. Just have a plan that that small church has a way to get more people into the kingdom. I get tickled when people say, well, Rick, I think you have an agenda. Well, of course I have an agenda. You have a leader who doesn't have an agenda, get a new leader. Here's my agenda. It's in 1 Corinthians 9. I'll just tell you what it is. I've become all things to all people so I could save some of them in any way possible. That's the agenda. Remember the end of the movie, Schindler's List? And Oscar Schindler has saved 1,100 Jews from destruction by managing to get them on a work list instead of being deported to a prison camp where they'll die. And at the end of that movie, he's breaking down as he sees these faces. And he looks at his car, and he starts to cry. And he says, that car, I could have sold that car and saved ten more lives. This pen's made of gold. I could have sold this pen and made, saved two more lives. You see, what he realizes at the end is that they're not just numbers. Numbers are people. And people have stories, and people have histories, and people have eternities. So yes, we will count people as long as God says people count. Now, next question I haven't heard here, but I've heard in the past, and so I'm going to bring it up. What happens if something happens to Rick? Well, what if Rick has an affair and gets divorced? Well, first off, I'm not going to have an affair. And second off, if I did, I wouldn't get a divorce because it's legally impossible to divorce a dead man. Did you know that? (laughs) You cannot do that. What happens if Rick dies? Well, my favorite answer to that, Bob Russell said when he was in a campaign at his church, people kept saying, well, what happens if Bob dies? And finally, one of the oldest ladies in the church said, well, we'll bury the dude and we'll go on. Let me tell you something. This church had a Christ-exalting agenda before I ever came here. It'll have a Christ-exalting agenda after I'm gone because Rick has never been the head of this church. Tell you something. I would like, I would like, if God wills and if you're okay with it, I would like to stay in the role I have right now at least through the 2020 vision and see that fulfilled. But I want you to know why I am, well, thank you. My mom's here clapping from heaven. (laughs) I want you to know why I'm making the largest gift in my history. It's for the next guy. Okay? When we redo this auditorium, the next preacher is going to enjoy it a whole lot longer than I will. When Livingstone University finally has 4,000 students and has a big graduation ceremony, somebody else will be the speaker. It won't be me. When the thousands in Africa and Chile are saved... And the thousands in this place are saved in Fort Worth. I'll know I had a part in that. But somebody else will be the preacher. And I'm cool with that. What we're going to do in the next several weeks is going to impact the next several decades. We're going to raise a million and a half dollars to support 21 missionaries. We're going to raise another million and a half dollars to start a campus on the west side. 
And then we're going to spend $7 million to do what we need to do right here on this campus. Now, that raises a really important and fair question. How can we justify spending all this money on a building? Let's talk about this. One of the things I want you to realize is that a big part of that money is money that is not optional. Here's what I mean. We have got to fix the foundation in this building. The longer we wait, the more it's going to cost us. We've got to replace the lighting. We can't fix them anymore. As soon as we touch that ceiling, the city is going to demand that we come up to code with the rest of the ceiling and the sprinkler system. We've got to fix these pews. You have no idea how much we spend now to keep fixing and repairing these pews we've been using for 25 years. We've got to replace the flooring. All these things are going to cost about three and a half million dollars, and they have to get done. Now, it is true that we would also like to spend some money to improve the sound and the video here. It's going to have to get done someday. It'd be nice to do it all at once because the longer we wait, the more it costs. But here's what I want you to think about. We can sit around and we can focus on how expensive upkeep is or we can focus on why it's necessary because this building is used for so much by so many. This building that we enjoy because of the sacrifice of people like you saw on the screen has been an amazing ministry tool for over 25 years. Did you know that we schedule this building over 440 hours a week for ministry? Only about 100 of that is for worship and Bible classes. Over 300 hours a week we're using this building somewhere for ministry. You think about all the people here that have been saved. All the people who've gotten help with their drug addictions. All the people who've gotten counseling for their marriages. All the teenagers who have found Christ here. All the people who've been comforted by funerals and by the gospel preached in this building. It's been a tremendous tool. Now, I'm going to go on a small mini rant. Okay? Just give me a small one. I have a problem with people that like to bash buildings and sound super spiritual. I just don't believe in spending money on buildings. Their whole life has been blessed by buildings. They went off to college and got educated in buildings that cost millions of dollars that their parents and grandparents sacrificed so they could be educated in. Then they come to a church like this where their children are blessed and they're blessed by this tremendous tool that somebody else sacrificed so that they could enjoy and now they're going to tell me they're not going to sacrifice so the next generation can enjoy it too? I think that's a little bit selfish. Okay, rant's over. (laughs) The real problem isn't buildings. The real problem is consumerism. And I think that's fair. I think it's fair to be concerned about a culture that wants to just come to a nice church building for two hours and get entertained and then forget about Jesus the rest of the week. I think that's fair. So the question we've got to face is, how can we justify spending all this money on ourselves? Let's talk about that honestly. Look back at the history of our church. The last capital campaign was in the year 2000, and we raised $4 million. We did no borrowing to build our youth center. In the next five years, we gave $14 million 
to externally focused initiatives to bless people who don't come to our church. Then in 2005, we announced our, two, our 2020 vision. Since from 2005 to today, this church has given $31 million to people who don't come to this church in the name of Jesus. Now, let's look at our current practice. Because we are a debt-free church, right now, very few churches in America can say this, over 50% of our budget goes to bless people who don't currently attend this church. See, it's not uh, either or. Either we're spending money on ourselves or we're spending money on someone else. It's both and. What we're doing here to grow and make this church healthy is creating resources to bless other people. And I just want you to look ahead. This money isn't for ourselves. This money is for the 4,000 people who aren't a part of this church yet, who are going to come and enjoy what's happening in Jerusalem so that we have more funds to fuel the vision to reach Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. One last question. I'll get real personal. Do you feel like you've led this campaign the right way? I don't know. Never done one of these before. Nothing of this scale. I know this campaign was birthed in prayer. I know it's been carried along by prayer. I know when the vision was formed in the hearts of me and the elders, and I know how we prayed, I know how we fasted, I know our motives were pure, I know that our only heart's desire is to see God glorified. I know I've tried not to use manipulation or guilt in my preaching to get you ready for this campaign. I know something else. I haven't followed the advice of the experts. We have not run this campaign like the professional church fundraisers say we should have run it. We haven't hired outside consultants. Everything we've produced, we've done in-house. It hadn't been very slick. It's been sincere. I haven't gone and strong-armed anybody taken anyone to lunch and told them how much I expect them to give. What I've done every day is pray that the Holy Spirit will do a serious work on your heart. Because I believe this season is a tremendous time for God to do a work in raising your level of discipleship. To make you ask really hard questions about how much you're invested in the mission of God. And that's what I care about. Not about dollars. I care about disciples. And I'm committed to anything I can do to help you be a better disciple. I want to be like the story Leighton Farrell tells. He used to preach for years in Highland Park. And he says, the pastor before him, when he was a very young man, and another very young man at that church, entered into a covenant together that they would be tithers. That whatever they made, they'd give 10% to the church. It was a long time ago, and that young man, his first year, he made $10,000, and he gave $1,000 to that church. But later, he made $100,000, and he gave $10,000 to his church in Highland Park. And then, God blessed him. He made a million dollars a year, and he gave $100,000 to that church. But then the day came that he made $6 million one year. 
And he just could not bring himself to give $600,000 to a church. Now, by this time, the pastor that he had entered a covenant with had moved on to another church. So he called him up and said, I need to come see you. So he got in his car, drove to see his old pastor, came into his office and said, I made $6 million. Remember years ago we made that promise? I cannot write a check for $600,000 to a church. His old friend, the pastor, got down on his knees and began to pray. And after a while, his buddy said, are you praying that God will let me out of my promise to tithe? He said, no, I'm praying that God will help you make $10,000 a year so you can go back to who you used to be. (laughs) I'm praying that God will do whatever it takes to help you become the disciple you need to be. I don't know a thing about fundraising. But I know something about investing. I know when you invest in something that is short-term and destined to burn, it wasn't very wise. Do you remember when the Exxon Valdez wrecked and all the oil spilt on the Alaska coast? And all the animals up there were damaged by the oil and there was a huge outcry to protect the environment. And millions were spent to try to restore the pristine Alaskan coast. Do you know what it would cost? It would cost up to $80,000 to save one seal that had been coated in oil. And so they had this big ceremony up there some years ago. They took these two seals. They had spent $80,000 apiece to get all the oil off and clean them up and set them back into the pure water. And they had this big ceremony and everybody was on the sides and they were clapping and they put the seals back in the water. And one minute later, a killer whale showed up and made both of them. Well, I don't know a thing about fundraising, but I know something about investing. And if you have any doubt, I want you to go and ask the older members of our church. Some of the people you saw on the screen and some of their peers, you asked them if they regretted 20 and 30 and 40 years ago every sacrifice they made so that you could enjoy what's here right now. Every time they hear about a marriage saved or another addict helped, or another person get baptized, or another child talk about Jesus. Ask them if they regret one single sacrifice they made. I think you're going to be encouraged and challenged by their answers. And i got a question for you. I think it's a fair question. Am I basically a consumer or a contributor at the hills? Am I basically... Just someone who comes and takes and leaves? Or am I contributing my heart and my time and my money to the mission of God in this church? Maybe God is using this campaign to get your attention. To help us realize we exist for His agenda. He doesn't exist for ours. Some of you remember the name of Fred Craddock, well-known preacher. When he was a young man, he said the first church was in this little bitty town in Oklahoma. Just 450 people in the town and four churches. Neither one of them very well attended. He said the biggest attendance in town was the local cafe where all the guys went in their pickups to drink coffee in the morning. And the patron saint of that little town in this wheat farming community was named Frank. Frank had nothing to do with God. When Fred met him, Frank said right up front, I work hard, I take care of my family, I mind my own business, 
and everything else just fluff. He was saying, don't go there with me, preacher. So you could imagine Fred's surprise when at the age of 77, Frank showed up one Sunday, presented himself to be baptized. And later, Fred was able to ask him, Frank, do you remember when I met you and you said, I work hard, I take care of my family, I mind my own business. And Frank said, I still say that. Well, what's the difference? And Frank said, well, now I finally know what my business is. It's true. Most people only live for themselves. But it's also true that what we do for God is the only thing that will last. And my prayer is that you will live for a greater truth. Let's pray. Well, Father, this was a different kind of teaching. But I know just based on the feedback I got last night, there are some people here today that really needed what was said today. That really need to wrestle with where their own hearts are. Father, we, we want to be open to whatever you want to teach us right now. Because we all have some growing to do. None of us has arrived as lovers. None of us has arrived as servers. None of us has arrived as givers. So do a work in us. And help us, God, not to be afraid of the Holy Spirit's call to a deeper commitment. Father, we want to be a part of something that's bigger than us. We want to be a part of something that's going to be bearing fruit decades and generations from now. We want to put our treasure in heaven. You didn't keep your best, God, but you shared it with us. Help us to be more like you, for Jesus' sake. Amen. God doesn't need your money, but he absolutely wants your heart. Some of you have never made Jesus your Lord and your Savior. You say, well, I come to church all the time. I know you do, but you've never made Jesus your Lord and Savior. Jesus is your hobby. He's not your obsession. God wants that to change. And for some of you, that actually begins with the public statement, I want Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. I want to be baptized in front of all these people so that they will know I'm serious about it. I want to be His disciple. And this is the morning to do that. So let's stand up and you come right now while we sing.